Welcome to Officer Wellness with Brian Manley, a candid and informative discussion between retired police chief Brian Manley and law enforcement leaders about the many aspects of officer wellness. We hope you enjoy this episode and find it informative. Officer Wellness is powered by Off-Duty Management. Uh, hello, everyone, and thank you uh, for joining uh, this episode of uh, Officer uh, Health and Wellness. Uh, today, we are uh, very lucky to have joining us Dr. Katherine Kuhlman. Uh, she is a board-certified police and public safety psychologist. She is the owner of Kuhlman Psychology and Consulting, and she's a nationally recognized expert in the field of public safety and wellness. And, and first, may I say, Dr. Kuhlman, as a retired law enforcement uh, officer myself, thank you for dedicating yourself to a, a career really trying to help those who serve, uh, helping those men and women who put it out there every single day deal with, uh, unfortunately, what uh, they take home with them. So uh, I appreciate you being here with us today. Look forward to our conversation. And uh, let me just give you uh, an opportunity just probably to do a better introduction of yourself than I just did. No, Brian, I think you did pretty well. And um, first of all, the privilege is mine. This is this is truly a passion of mine to support public safety and first responders, um, especially law enforcement. And um, I don't think that I could have fallen into a better profession. Um, so as you mentioned, I am a board certified police and public safety psychologist, and um, I'm licensed in Arizona, California, and Hawaii, although my office is in Arizona. And I have the honor and privilege of getting to work with departments at both the local and federal, um, as well as state level. And um, I do everything from counseling with first responders to um, critical incident debriefings and talking with officers after shootings, um, on the front end, pre-employment evaluations, fitness for duty evaluations, case consultation, oversight of peer support teams, uh, you name it. I, I tend to kind of wiggle myself um, into helping out with it. Um, I'm very involved in um, the International Association of Chiefs of Police and the different guidelines that the psychological services section puts out. Um, so I'm always trying to do what I can to try to uh, make our field better um, and provide service to the field and do what we can to support our law enforcement officers. Well, given that you've obviously been in the field for a while, you've got a lot of experience, a tremendous amount of training give your sense of where we are with treating those men and women who serve with addressing the issues we know better today than maybe in the past uh how they impact our officers uh where do you think we are today versus where we came from and and what do you see is really the future and how do we continue to advance our service to those who serve i think the good news is that we're definitely in a much better place today than we were um, 10 years, even five years ago, and certainly better than 20 years ago. Um, we are in a place now where I do think the stigma is starting to slip away. It's very much still there. There's no doubt about that. Um, but there is recognition um, from officers and agencies that the trauma that officers go through truly on a day-to-day -day basis is very, very real. And we've gone from this place of, you know, providing services just after shootings or mass casualty events to recognizing the day-in, day-out traumas. You know, the motor vehicle accidents, the child deaths, the suicides, just running from call to call and that adrenaline rush and subsequent dump that the body is just not used to. And the more education that we've had along the way, the more agencies have recognized it and have been able to shift in how they truly protect the, the mental wellness of their officers. 
So in, in the area of improvements that we've made, I know as, as I was uh, really winding down my career at the Austin Police Department and, and really pushing the envelope with what we had been doing with officer health and wellness, there was a new type of treatment that had come out that we began using, and that was the EMDR uh, program. And I know that you're very uh, familiar with that and are actually trained in that as well. But um, I don't believe that that is as widely known in our industry as it probably would be and therefore is probably not being used to the extent that it should be. So what are your thoughts around EMDR and, uh, and how can we advance the use of that uh, across the country for, uh, for other agencies? EMDR is a, it's a pretty widely known treatment for, for trauma. And I think that it's definitely gaining momentum in the use with first responders. Um, the, the really, the idea behind EMDR, which stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing is that, um, when we can integrate the left and right hemispheres of the brain, people are more effectively able to process trauma. There's recognition that trauma is not just a snapshot of something bad that happens, that it kind of finds a way to live within the body. And it's almost like an iceberg. You have to get to the root of it. And there's only a small portion that's actually visible or conscious to people. And so these new treatments like EMDR, like um, brain spotting or somatic experiencing, these are all these kind of mind-body treatments that are really developed for trauma. Um, I think that part of the apprehension, especially among risk responders for engaging in some of these treatments, is they're kind of weird when you go through them. You know, with EMDR, for example, you've either got buzzers in your hands that you're, you know, buzzing back and forth, or you've got a light that you're following with your eyes, or you're tapping on something. And so there's kind of this like voodoo, you know, you know, aura to it that seems kind of bizarre. Um, but when you can let your guard down a little bit and actually engage in the treatment, it's been highly effective. And I think what it really does is it allows people to work through things a lot quicker than they may otherwise would have if they were just talking things through, which is huge when it comes to incredibly traumatic events. And you mentioned earlier, obviously, the, the stigma around mental health in law enforcement, uh, the resistance, I think, that still exists, and I know you do as well, amongst officers to seek that help, to be the one to raise your hand and say that you need that help. It's, it's still, I think, uh, faces a lot of barriers within agencies, but outside of just maybe the cultural challenges to really advance this, I know that there can be financial challenges too within agencies. Different agencies have different levels of resourcing and therefore availability to provide services to the, to the men and women who serve. Um, I know that we uh, at the Austin Police Department were successful. Uh, we had actually sought grant funding and were awarded uh, grants that we used to not only bring in additional uh, psychologists into the, the, the fold with our agency to provide this, tr uh, this training, this treatment, but also we were able to provide them with EMDR certification as well. And then uh, through that cooperative agreement, they then agreed to provide services to our officers. So we were able to implement a program that was grant funded that really expanded the capacity of our agency to provide mental health services, especially through EMDR treatment to, uh, to our officers. Um, and, and I would only ask uh, you, obviously, you're much closer to this uh, being a, a practicing clinician. Are there other ways that you could recommend agencies bring this into their uh, fold of their mental health services or just their health and wellness services that they provide their officers? 
Well, I love the example that you provided. And, you know, I've worked as a police psychologist in two states, you know, now Arizona, but previously Colorado. And what you did with Austin PD with, you know, um, securing that grant funding and um, training uh, clinicians to, you know, in AMDR to then treat your police officers is nothing that I've seen anywhere that I've worked. And so, I mean, kudos to you for for, for doing that, um, because not only are you ensuring that the clinicians that your officers are using are, are trained in something that's used to treat trauma, but you're also in the process making sure that you have clinicians who are competent in the treatment of law enforcement. And I think that's the biggest hurdle for agencies finding resources. You know, I, I cannot tell you how many times I've worked with an officer and I feel like I'm picking up the broken pieces of damage that's been done by previous clinicians simply because they were not well-versed in working with law enforcement. You know, they ask, you know, what in my opinion kind of sounds like stupid questions about, you know, oh, well, you don't like working graves. Can't you just ask to work another shift? Of course not. You know, or or they are really uncomfortable with the officer having a gun in, in the office, not recognizing that that firearm is like that officer's third arm, right? It's just, it's part of their body. And so um, I think that having clinicians who are competent in and treating the, that culture of law enforcement and understanding, you know, you don't have to, to do the job yourself, but you have to have an understanding of what the day-to-day looks like um, for a law enforcement officer. And that I think is critical. And that's what turns a lot of officers off is, you know, they come into contact with clinicians who just don't get the job or they don't speak the same language and they find themselves wasting a lot of time explaining what they do for a living. And so one of the best things that departments can do is to identify clinicians within the community who are either competent in working with law enforcement or who are willing to be. There's going to be parts of the country that just don't have anybody locally um, with that type of experience. But if you can find somebody who's willing to take some webinars and do some workshops and go on a few ride-alongs and spend some time within the department, you can pretty, you know, quickly kind of start to pick up on on the culture of that department and and what law enforcement is like. It's not going to be the same, but but then you've got somebody who at least is interested and has that passion for helping out. That's one of the best things that departments can do is, you know, identify those people who are, who are going to be the best fit for them. And I, I want to pick up on something that you said, because, you know, like, like really any other industry, law enforcement is, it's really a subculture. It is, it is its own group. It is, it is tough to get in. It's tough to, to make inroads into, especially when it requires an officer making themselves vulnerable to address issues that they have faced. And uh, within that subculture, the grapevine is alive and well, and you get that one bad experience. You get that clinician that, you know, asked a question in a way that it almost makes the officer feel guilty for an action that they had to take instead of phrasing it in, in, in a much better way. Um, you, you said yourself, you find yourself picking up the pieces uh, that were done uh, through really other clinicians who had all the best intent, but uh, who went about it the wrong way. So uh, I, I want to, you know, thank you and, and, and really reemphasize the importance um, of, of getting the right people in the mix so that this, not only within the agency that's considering bringing in these mental health and wellness programs, but within policing as a whole, continues to grow through successful outcomes. You know, let's face it, we've had critical incident debriefs and things like that for decades, right? But that doesn't mean they've always been done right. And unfortunately, 
Um, I, I can think of examples where we've had probably a worse outcome because of the way that, that debrief was handled uh, or, or probably more appropriately mishandled. Um, so, um, and I think you touched on it a little bit, but are there resources out there for police psychologists, those, those folks that really want to help and, and, and do it the right way to seek that kind of training? Um, uh, and, and if so, how, how do they find that? There's a number of resources. So one of the best things, you know, if you're a clinician that's interested in working with this population, or if you're a department and you, um, you know, you're lacking that clinician and you're trying to, you know, identify somebody in the community and, and get them that training, um, professional organizations are one of the best ways to go. So the International Association of Chiefs of Police or IACP, which of course off-duty management is very familiar with, um, has the psycholo- police psychological services section. Um, and you don't have to be a member of the section to attend the annual training each year at the uh, annual conference. Um, you do have there to become a member. There's some uh, hoops to jump through, but you can certainly attend that training. Um, there's also the Society for Police and Criminal Psychology that has an annual conference. And there's a lot of really great training there. Um, the American Board of Professional Psychology has an Academy of Police and Public Safety Psychology. Um, and basically that the, those are continuing education opportunities for people who are interested in getting into the field of police and public safety psychology. So it's like the bare bones. What do you need to know? What do police psychologists do? Here's some considerations. Um, and they have trainings regularly. There's also been some um, courses that have been developed to essentially train clinicians to become culturally competent in working with first responders. Um, and there's two specifically that I can think of off the top of my head that are essentially, they're like 40-hour programs. And um, it's a combination of classroom uh, learning and also requirements of that that person goes on a ride along. And so that's kind of a, a really easy way to get that training. Unfortunately, in graduate programs, there's really not a lot of options when it comes to learning about this. And so that's why this, the field of police psychology or, you know, even just mental health clinicians that want to work with police officers is so low because they don't often even know that this is an option or that this is a specialty. So there are some graduate programs and master's programs that are beginning to include courses. Um, Colorado State University developed an online program um, for, to get a master's degree in counseling for military and first responders. Um, so that's a master's counsel, master's in counseling program, rather, that is going to be specialized. Um, and that's one of the first in the entire country. Um, otherwise, it's a class here, a class there. You hope that people get a continuing education workshop, but there's not a lot out there. And so it's good that this is happening. And it's really great that agencies can have the resources to to throw at clinicians that may be interested in this work. Well, that is encouraging that colleges are starting to recognize the need and actually gearing degree programs specifically for this uh, for this area of of, uh, of counseling. Um, and I guess it's probably also at the same time, uh, you know, a little bit concerning that uh, that the need is there. But uh, the fact that we're finally addressing what has been there all along is is so important. So. Within the agencies that you work with and within, you know, your experience, uh, again, how can an agency that wants to implement a health and wellness program 
go about it in a way that is most likely going to lead to success. Again, we're dealing with a population that is less likely to seek help than others, um, and uh, it can be seen as a sign of weakness. Uh, if there's no trust built into that health and wellness program, if there's a fear that anything that that officer says to that clinician, that therapist is going to make its way back to the police administration and potentially be used against them uh, for future assignments or even their current assignment, then we know it's a non-starter. We know the officers are not going to go and seek that help. So how would you recommend to those agencies that are really wanting to either improve the program that they already have or begin a new program, go about building that necessary trust and bringing in the, the appropriate resources as you just talked about? I think it starts with our law enforcement leaders, right? They're the ones that are really responsible for walking the talk. And so one of the worst things that can happen is you have a law enforcement leader who says, you know, we support health and wellness of our officers, but then after a critical incident demands to know, you know, what's going on with every single affected officer and whether they're seeking counseling and the details of it. So it's right. It's it's just a complete contrast to what they're preaching. So I think that's number one is um, leaders being willing to really appreciate well, wellness throughout the fabric of their organization, um, from hire to retire and, and see wellness as more than just this, you know, fluffy little box that they should check off because they should. Um, they have to truly believe in it. And I, I think the research is there to, to support that this is something that people should be doing. And obviously within the field of law enforcement, wellness and officer mental health has been a really hot topic for many years. So we're going in the right direction there. Um, I think first of all is, you know, having, identifying the people in your community who are going to be able to support that wellness program. And wellness doesn't, you know, on, on my end, I'm thinking about mental health, but of course, wellness also includes things like physical health, financial responsibility, spirituality, things like that. And so who are the people that you're going to bring in that you're going to trust? And how do you make sure that your officers get to know those people? Um, because the last thing that you want is during a time of need or a time of crisis for them to be, you know, seeking out referrals or having to jump through hoops or having to go through three or four people just to figure out who they need to be calling. So the more that you can involve these folks within your organization, the better. Um, and I think, you know, wellness really is on a continuum. So certainly you want people to support your organization in a time of need when there's a critical incident. But what about when things are going well? Um, when somebody gets married or there's a retirement or somebody has a baby or becomes a grandfather for the first time, you know, you want to celebrate those things too. And so that's a perfect opportunity, for example, for peer support to reach out and say congratulations. And so the more um, awareness and presence that, you know, wellness programs, peer support programs, SISM programs, clinicians, anything like that, um, the more awareness and presence that they can have, the better. So you just brought up a topic that I was wanting to get to at some point. So now is probably the appropriate time, and that is peer support programs. Uh, and the number one, I think they're one of the easier ones because they're already in-house. They don't necessarily cost additional dollars for that agency, although it will be time the officer will spend away from whatever their, their primary duties are. Larger agencies, uh, I know uh, with my agency, I actually had assigned officers full-time that that was their job, was peer support. They were to make themselves 
um, in the station, the house they were assigned, they were the person that was to get to know all the officers that worked out of that substation, to know the families, to understand what issues they might be facing, and, and, and hopefully to be, if not the first-line supervisor, uh, recognizing it, that first person to recognize that something is off with an officer, that they're dealing with something that's changing their behavior in, in, a, uh, in a negative way. So for peer support programs, uh, again, similar, I would think, with, with clinicians. A, a clinician that doesn't have the right training and the right approach can do more damage than good, although unintentional. How should an agency go about building a peer support program in a way that it will gain the trust of the men and women in the agency, but that it will also have that desired uh, outcome of improving the overall health and wellness. And and you mentioned a, an, an interesting topic that we find ourselves talking about those times when officers are in need after the critical incident, after a death in the agency, something like that, but that we sometimes miss the importance of those very same resources being used to celebrate the uh, the successes or the personal um, uh, achievements or, or wins for officers and their families. So I know I kind of I said a lot there, but just kind of unpacking that a little bit, let's talk about peer support and how do we build it and how do we make sure it's built in a way that it succeeds? I think peer support teams are critical. Um, not everybody wants to go talk to a shrink, um, nor do the problems that they're experiencing always rise to the, the degree or intensity that that's what they need. You know, sometimes people just need somebody to vent to, to talk to, and peer support just fills that, that, that gap where they understand the job, um, and they have knowledge of the inner workings of the department and, you know, sometimes the political and red tape administrative issues that officers experience too, which can be just as frustrating as the actual trauma that they go through. And so peer support just plays that that amazing role. And um, so if your department doesn't have a peer support team, it's something to look into. And if you have a small department, having regional peer support teams is, is a consideration to think of. Um, the IACP, uh, Police Psychological Services section, again, has um, peer support guidelines that talk about, you know, how do you train your peer support officers? Um, what kinds of topics should be covered during a training? Um, how often should you have meetings? Um, what does confidentiality look like? Um, most states have laws regarding confidentiality of peer supporters, which basically say that those peer supporters cannot release any information that an officer discloses to them, with the exception of if that officer says they're a harm to self or others, or if they report um, a legal violation or a policy violation. Um, otherwise, it must remain confidential. And actually, um, I think it was two days ago that President Biden signed the, the COPS Act into law, which extends those the, 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 that confidentiality to federal law enforcement um, agencies, which is huge. And so there's recognition on a, on a national level that this is important. Um, so peer support is absolutely critical. The people that you select for your peer support team is even more critical. Um, those people in your agency that have credibility, those people in your agency that people already kind of lean on in hard times. Um, when you're selecting people for a peer support team, um, it's usually best to ask other people, who would you go to and ask them to apply rather than having people self-nominate? Um, because then you're going to get people who are actually, you know, kind of inherently designed to be peer supporters versus people that just, you know, want something that looks good on a resume or, you know, want to be a part of something. And because, 
it takes one person on a peer support team to ruin the credibility of that entire team. Um, all it takes is one person violating confidentiality or leaking information. Um, and then that entire peer support team has to be disbanded and rebuilt from the bottom. And then people don't use it and it completely loses anything um, that it was trying to do in the first place. So the people on it are absolutely massive. I, I think your suggestion there that you ask the question of who would you recommend to be a peer support officer cannot be overemphasized because you're right. Sometimes people that volunteer for assignments within the police agency or particularly what we're talking about here today, a peer support team might not be the ones that are best suited for it. And, and as you said, it only takes one to, uh, to really derail a program. You've been listening to Officer Wellness with Brian Manley, powered by Off-Duty Management. Off-Duty Management provides off-duty job administrative services and comprehensive liability insurance to officers and agencies at no cost. For more information on Off-Duty Management, visit offdutymanagement.com.